Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 317th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jennifer Climo. Jennifer is the CEO and a senior advisor for Milestone Financial Planning, an independent RA based in Bedford, New Hampshire, that oversees $360 million in assets under management for 225 client households. What's unique about Jennifer, though, is how after more than a decade of building her own successful solo practice, she intentionally decided to merge her firm with another solo practitioner when an unusual crisis opportunity presented itself and handle the more complex business management dynamics that followed so that she could fulfill her goals of scaling and growing her practice beyond herself and building an enterprise that would outlive her. In this episode, we talk about how after the sudden passing of a successor for a close advisor friend and solo that she met through a local study group of NAPFA advisors, Jennifer decided to merge their practices so she could not only help her advisor friend and the client she served, but create a positive opportunity for Jennifer's own practice to scale up. How during the first year after the merger, Jennifer realized her new partner still needed a succession plan and created a unique buyout structure that offers a 40% down payment coupled with retirement payments ongoing of 15% of profits for life, which also helped entice future partners who only needed to cover 40% of a purchase price buy-in themselves. And how Jennifer's unique succession structure has now attracted another of her NAFA study group partners who was also looking to retire, which prompted a second merger and has allowed her to grow and scale the business even further. We also talk about how, in addition to her unique succession structure, Jennifer created an operating agreement for her firm based on the teachings of Philip Palaviv and Mark Tabergian when she added a partner and outlined the financial management of their P&L and their operating agreement as targeting 40% advisor compensation, 35% overhead expenses, and 25% profit margins. How, though the merging of the practices created several pain points for Jennifer and her partners as they all use different advisor technology and had differing fee schedules, she leveraged those issues and opportunities to find the right technology for the blended practice to develop better and easier, more efficient processes and eventually was able to incrementally raise fees and increase the firm's overall profitability as they serve clients more efficiently. And how even though Jennifer's initial intention to join her NAPA study group was to glean insight on practice management techniques and processes, her continued connections with those advisors over the years created a close-knit and trusted community that's proven to give Jennifer even greater opportunities for the business in the long run. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jennifer shares how she was surprised at how far she's come in her career in business, as she admits that she put in the work and hard dedication, but just never realized it would lead to her running a practice that would be a multi-million dollar revenue business and doing so as a female business owner. How after discovering a valued longtime employee was unhappy and struggling, Jennifer learned the hard way the importance of dedicating time to not only teach and train employees, but also to listen and communicate properly so that she can create a better work environment and happier employees to aid retention. And why Jennifer feels it's important for newer, younger advisors to not be deterred by naysayers in life and in the financial service industry and instead should focus on the skills they do have and how they can use those skills to advance in their own careers. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jennifer Climo. Welcome, Jennifer Climo, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. 
It's great to be here, Michael. I think I've listened to most of your 300 plus episodes, so this is quite an honor. Oh, fantastic. I, I appreciate that. And I'm excited to have you join us for the the episode today and, and the opportunity to share some of your story that I, I think speaks to a, a phenomenon that I see happening a lot, particularly in the in the independent advisor channel these days, which is advisors that go out on their own. We we spend some number of years building the business. We get to a certain level of of success in the business, but the 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 burden and challenge in the independent channel to me always and forever has been just everything's on your shoulders. Like you got to, you got to pick everything. You got to decide everything. It all sits on you and it can get, get a little lonely. It can get a little isolating sometimes. And to some extent we try to find community in places like membership associations, but it's not quite the same as having someone else there leading the business with you, also known as a business partner. And, and I've seen this phenomenon in recent years where advisors who've been doing this for a long time decide that I've been fine for maybe 10 plus years in running on my own the business, but I've decided that I'd like to do this with a business partner now. Like I'd like to have, I'd like to merge. I'd like to work with someone else. Sometimes it's kind of driven by succession and sort of eyeing an exit plan in the future. But a lot of the time it's, I, I view it as more fundamental than that. It's just, we just like another person around that I can sort of share this journey with and share these uh, burdens and decisions with, and maybe find someone who has some strengths in my weaknesses, and I've got strengths in their weaknesses, and we can be complementary, and the whole is worth more than the sum of the parts. But there's this urge to merge that I'm seeing cropping up more lately. And I, I know this is a journey that you have been down yourself over the past several years. And so I'm just really sort of curious and excited <clears throat> for more of the discussion of how you came to this decision that said, I'm I've been a solo for a long time but I'm 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 ready to not be a solo anymore. I would like to not be a solo anymore and and then how that transition happens. What what leads you to say it's no longer time for me to run my solo practice anymore? Well, um for us, for me, I wish it was that conscious of a decision. In my particular case, it was a little bit different. I had been working as a solo since 2003 and we're pushing 2015. And in the um, interim, um, as many solos do, we had a little group of us that would meet to discuss practice management. We all ran our own practices. Mine was the only one that had employees. My other uh, cohorts thought I was crazy to have employees. I thought they were crazy not to, but we would all get together once a month or so and chat about different practice management issues. And so we got to be good friends. We did that for about, I want to say nine or 10 years. And then one day, and I'll never forget it, I got an email from a member of the group. Um, One of our members had merged her practice um, because she was a little bit older, about 19 years older than me, and she had merged her practice in with a younger advisor in 2008 as a succession plan. She had about 20 clients. He had about 80. And um, he uh, suddenly passed in his sleep. He passed away. Oh my gosh. And um, the email from one of the members of the group is, oh my goodness, so-and-so died. And can you believe it? And now uh, Jean has uh, suddenly a hundred clients and has to call the SEC because they were SEC registered and report that. And we were all horrified. And everybody in the industry, I have to say, it's a really tight-knit group up here in New Hampshire. New Hampshire isn't very big. There aren't a ton of uh, NAPFA advisors, but they all support each other. So, I mean, people were sending their... Uh, professional staff down to um, help Gene out, to look at clients, to try to, you know, figure out, I mean, imagine just being gone 
So you have no to-do list. What your to-do list is never done, right? So yeah. there's some to-do list somewhere, and you know. Plus, you got to get a handle on the clients, and they really ran their practice more like uh, eat what you kill, not necessarily as a, a combined practice. Some things were combined, Wait, but mean, meaning that like Jean had 20 clients and her partner had 80, but they weren't even that like overlapping and engaged with the clients. So these were right. a lot of these people were basically strangers to absolutely Jean individually. Yes. But now they're your clients. And now he'd mentioned her to them, most of them, which is fine, but they were very different personalities too. And um they did planning differently. And um yeah, so that was just it was just a shock. So um I very quickly within a couple of weeks after he passed, I went up and said, hey, let's let's just have lunch because uh, they didn't have employees either, but again, I did. And so I said, I, I, I think I have these systems in place and I've really been wanting to grow and I've been contemplating, you know, hiring another CFP, but I kind of think I'm pretty good with this business stuff. I think I can handle the business stuff. If you can just keep these clients from leaving, I can do everything else and have us merged in a couple of months. And then we can create a new business to move forward. And that's what we did. Um, so three months. Three and a half months later, uh, we were legally merged. So, oh, so I have so many questions about this. Well, so first, <laughs> so just the like the group that you had that was coming together. I think you said yes. like there was a group of you. You met on a monthly basis. So, just where did the group come from? I mean, just so how did you actually find a group for yourself? Because for some advisors I know, like they're very lonely solos and they they literally can't find a group or they don't know where to look. Right. And this is hard for me particularly because I am an introvert. And so I, I get exhausted when I go out and hang around a lot of people. But um, this is back in the early 2000s. I didn't have children. I um, I was super interested in starting and growing this practice. So I'm, I'm the type of person that needs to binge learn. I'm always binge learning something. And the topic was, you know, financial planning at the time. And so I'd gone back to Bentley to get my master's in financial planning. And there I met some folks and knew them. And so I'd go to conferences and FPA stuff. And then the big, the big thing was when after I joined NAPFA, and then we had an annual conference, I think it was in Chicago every year. And I would go to that. And in, there's a little airport in Manchester, New Hampshire, because I lived in Massachusetts, right on the New Hampshire border, tiny little air, airport. But it, um, we all took the flight from Manchester to Chicago. And on that flight were, unbeknownst to me, a whole bunch of advisors. And I was seated next to Jean. <laughs> so Jean and I started talking and we really hit it off and you know, just chatted about all things nerdy financial planning um, the whole way. So, and then, so like you met your study. So, I are like, are all your study group mates like New Hampshire NAPFA advisors? Is this specifically like a local geography thing? It, it kind of is. They were mass. So, we are on um, southern New Hampshire and uh, northern Massachusetts. So, I lived in Massachusetts at the time, but on the, um, the tip sort of. So, us Northern Massachusetts folks would connect with the Manchester folks and New Hampshire folks to to go to these conferences. Be, because you're all coming together to fly out of the Manchester airport. Because yes. really, who wants to go down to Logan in Boston? Like, <laughs> exactly. It's such a That's exactly it. Correct. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm I'm struck by this as well that a lot of study groups that I know that advisors form they make them fairly geographically dispersed. Um, like often sort of by intention, like that way, 
we're not too like we're not too close to each other that we're in each other's backyard either for clients or even for team members sometimes so i guess as i'm struck that your your study group was very geographically local cuz many i find are like consciously the opposite well we didn't worry about competition actually and this was before really video was a thing so it would have been hard to do distant right. and we would get together you know for lunch actually in person it was supposed to be once a month. It never was as people get busy and tax right. season happens and whatever. And sometimes years would go by, but we always communicated by email and or phone and would chat about different things. And occasionally someone would say, hey, I know that I met this person. They'd be a great addition to our group. And so we would add another advisor that way. Um, but it never got beyond four people. And I was going to ask, how, how big was it? So so four four people. So this is, this is just a handful of folks. This isn't yes. like a a room full of 12 to 15. Right. And also everybody had different goals. So, you know, I, I was solving for something different than they were, which is why I had employees. I always right. wanted to create a practice beyond me. That That's why it's not my name, right? So I, I wanted to be um, grow something that someday could, you know, have other owners, have employees. I just didn't know what it was going to look like. And they were solving for just lifestyle practices, which is, is fine. Um, but it's just a different a different goal. So, so you have this study group. Jean's one of the fellow advisors because she's in the study group as well. So that that's that's the the connection to know her and know what's going on as she hits this crisis moment for herself in in 2015. So I'm I'm curious. I realize like this is uh, uh, projecting through through Jean's world and and not yours, but I, like I'm just struck by this conversation that Jean had merged with this advisor in 2008. They were merged for seven years. Until 2015, when when he sadly passed, but it was still a what you kill. It sounds like there weren't necessarily a lot of common shared systems. There weren't shared clients. So, like, what was this merger partnership she had? Like, what what did it mean to be like a merged practice if they were still basically running two separate practices? Well, it wasn't full. It was the administrative and the the compliance and everything that was shared, I think. And I think the idea was that so Jean could slowly ramp down her hours and okay. the other advisor would take over her clients. And I think that was the whole point is that she was, you know, in her sixties and wanted to slow down okay. and just, you know, methodically work her way. She never wanted to have a bazillion clients and work a bazillion hours. Right. You know, that just wasn't her goal. And so that's where that was. And so, and unfortunately there, they had a uh, operating agreement, of course, because it's an LLC that specified what happened if somebody passed. But unfortunately, it was a little bit one way because you don't expect the. Uh, I mean, uh -huh. he must have been thirty-five when they merged. You don't expect that person to be wow. the one that passes, <laughs> right? So it was. It was def There were a lot of challenges with that. You know, we get to the what are the greatest challenges? That whole merger was. There's a lot of a lot of weeds we could get into on that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I am actually curious to go more into those in a moment, but I just wanted to make sure I understood the context. So, so from Jean's end, I guess this was: I'm older. This gentleman was is is younger. I'm probably going to retire out at some point in the coming years, coming decade or so. So let's merge together. We can share like we can share some overhead, compliance costs, and software costs, and office space, and the like. Uh, over time, you'll be able to take over my clients. Eventually, I'll retire out. No one's in any great hurry here, but we all kind of know where it's going. And yes. like that that was the structure. And then 
he unexpectedly passed away. The successor passed away. That's correct. The successor passed away. And and now suddenly Jean has her clients and all of his and is drowning. Right. A hundred clients for one person that's used to just, you know, coming in a few hours working on their own yeah. stuff. It was a lot. Yeah, that that sounds fair fairly awful. And so uh, I, I guess I'm wondering as well, like was there a was there a buy sell agreement or something other binding in, in place? Like did Gene have to take these clients? Was it possible to just say like, yeah, well, I guess this very sad, like I guess this partnership hasn't worked out since the person has passed away. I don't have capacity to do this. So you know, we're just gonna let these clients go off to wherever they're gonna go off to. That was an option at the time. I mean, she didn't have a lot of options. They were no good ones for sure. Yeah. If um so but for from my perspective, it it was, you know, I was smaller. So I had maybe 50 million under the management. They had about 120. But and to me, AUM shouldn't really be the discussion. It's always what is the revenue, right? <laughs> and so yep. my, my revenue was like I, I want to say 490, just under 500,000 and theirs was maybe six something. So it wasn't that far off from a revenue perspective. And so what I said is, hey, let's merge. I have the employees and the systems. I'll do all of the work. So, um, and, and if you guys, you know, you just keep the clients from leaving. And so then that gave purpose, like something she's very good at and very comfortable with is dealing with clients and doing planning and something I'm very good at and very comfortable with, which is running a business and then doing my own client stuff. And um, that's how we moved it forward. So I guess what were the respective like st- staff infrastructures in place to just just to be able to handle this? Like what what staff or support did they have for their 600,000ish of of revenue for their clients and then what staff did you have in place I guess both for your revenue and the fact that all of a sudden you have to support right Jean and her revenue. Like what so did the rest of the business look they, like? They had no employees. So I was the only one with employees. So okay. I had, I've always had an, an admin, it, back then it was really administrative assistant type of a role, full time. And then uh, since 2004, a year after I started. And then um, I also had a part time sort of power planner, but not trained as a power planner, really was helping me with some bookkeeping on the CPA side because I have another uh, business. I always had two businesses. One is a, a CPA tax practice um, and the other was Milestone. And then slowly, and the tax practice used to be way bigger. And then slowly as I grew Milestone, Milestone eclipsed it and became bigger. And now the tax practice is a tiny piece of Milestone in comparison. But I had, so I had one and a half FTEs of employees. And what I said is I'll tell my halftime person they need to go full time and that will be the capacity um, to start us off. And so that's where we started. And I want to say, so we were fully merged by February 1st, 2016 legally. And then a couple months after that, um, we quickly decide, I said, look at, I think we need to hire an adv- another CFP to help us out. And that's when we, uh, we used new planner recruiting actually to find um, John, our uh, my current partner. So, so how does this like just how does this deal come together? I mean, I, I'm just I mean, even like mechanically, like how, how does this how does this work? I mean, they you had an LLC, they had an LLC. Worse, 
worse. Okay. I had an S corp. I had a Massachusetts S corp, and they had a New Hampshire LLC. And okay. so we had to find. So I, and I'm very picky with because I'm a CPA also, so I'm kind of picky about the advice that we get. So we had to find an attorney that was versed, well versed in tax law as well as the legal stuff to be able to figure out how to merge us in a way that wouldn't kill us on taxes as well as um, with with the you know the actual mergers of Inc into into LLC. And we found a fantastic attorney in Manchester, um, a larger firm who helped us out and uh, structured the merger, the new operating agreement, um, did all of that stuff so that, that we could we could move on. And But we did it as a 50-50 split. So not to get too in the weeds, but just like, how did it work? Like, did was this an asset sale? Was this a stock sale? Did money change hands? Or did you so, just y- kind of everybody puts in their respective clients and revenue and we call it 50-50. So n- no money changed hands other than um, the uh, Gene had to buy out the widow, right? So so an LLC was worth something in the estate, right? So there was some sort of negotiation there. So there was there was lots of attorneys involved. <laughs> so there was a separate attorney. Okay, so Jean, so Jean had to buy out her her deceased partner yes. for for the for the share of the business uh, which I guess it sounds like there wasn't necessarily a buy sell set up in that direction because he wasn't presumed to be the one who would pass Correct. away first. Uh, but the LLC entity still has value, so you you still have to find some way to to value and buy out deceased partners' share for whatever the value of there is revenue, but there's right. no one around to manage the clients. But we want to retain the clients. <laughs> so, so actually, and and Jean did a fantastic job negotiating this with her her attorney because she's like, well, you know, I think the revenue is X, and you know, realistically, I'm not going to be able to keep all the clients because I'm not him. So, right. you know, that's a lot easier when you have a nice transition of clients, but when you have, mm. you know, hard to replicate somebody who's a completely different personality, and right. you know, if you have a client that wants a male advisor, can't change that, you know. Yep. So. Um, uh, so she did a great job negotiating that, uh, you know, whatever it was. So she had that buyout. And then right after that, we did our merger and they were no money changed hands, but we became our new entity. And the, um, that amount was then amortized on the business, the buyout became, so the debt that she had to purchase that business became debt of the entity. And, um, I, you know, I, they merged it such as it was a very complicated merger, so it was not an asset sale. And because it was an S corp versus an LLC, also made it more complex. And so you really get into the minutia of specific New Hampshire and Massachusetts state law of what entities can blend with what, what can convert into what, what what structures are permitted as you as you engage in this merger transaction. Right, and that's why it was very important to me to have an excellent. Attorney involved in that. So, how did you decide on just the split, like well, fifty fifty? Well, I from the very beginning when I went up there in November, right after he'd passed, I'd said I have this sort of sketch of an idea of how these this could work, but I have I have very few non negotiables, but I do have a couple, and so one of my non negotiables was that it was fifty fifty. I'll only do this if it's fifty fifty. It's going to be a ton of work for me, and. Um, but I think I can really help us and grow this, and this could be a great thing for the future. And 
Um, and we both had a lot in common. So we both custodied at TD Ameritrade. We both used DFA. We were both members of NAPFA. We had the same investment philosophy. That is crucial for a merger. And I already knew we got along. <laughs> like we got yeah. along really well. And since we'd known each other for 10 years, like she knew all the bad parts about me. And, <laughs> right. So that, that wasn't going to be a surprise that I've got right, this strong right, personality. Right. And sometimes I say things that <laughs> come across poorly. And, you know, she already knew all that. So like you said, it's exactly like a marriage when you get into a business partnership. So so the the 50-50 sort of acknowledgement and framing was strictly speaking, like their practice had a little bit more revenue than yours, more more by a lot more by AUM, a little bit more by revenue, but they're in transition. Who knows how many clients are going to stay? You need my support in order for them to stay. I'm going to do the work to actually make this merger happen. So like this is what I need it to be to make it work and I guess from Jean's end, like the risk that the whole thing falls apart because she doesn't want to do 100 clients solo after having done 20 for a long time meant that was a good deal for her too. Yes. It, I think in the in the end, it was a good deal for, for both of us. But on my end, it was definitely sweat equity is what I put into it. So so you get through the uh, the merger in a couple of months of legal wrangling, the, like the dust settles. So I guess at, at that point, it's early 2016, suddenly now you're about 170 million of assets, 1.1 million of revenue. You and Jean and two other full-time employees. How, yes. how many how many clients was it? I guess 100. like she had 100. How many were how many did you Oh, have actually, I'm sorry, 180. You're right, cuz I had about 80. Okay. So, so you're so you're serving about 180 clients as well, or I guess between yes. the two of you. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I I think of that just sort of classically like that's it's a pretty good, healthy, just advisory practice overall. Like two advisors, two support, 180 clients, $1.1 million of, of revenue. Uh, you know, when I, when I think about that from a business metrics and like it's, uh, 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 it's about $275,000 of revenue per employee, uh, which is a, a pretty good metric for advisory firms. You've got 90 clients across two advisors to get to 180 total. Like that's when I think about that, that's uh those are really healthy practice metrics, but that's you that's a business at capacity. Like you don't Correct. have a lot of room to grow. Like <laughs> yes, right. you can you can service that, but there's not there's not much room to grow, which I guess takes you to so you needed to hire. So once the dust settles, like we made it, now we have no capacity to grow. We need to go hire an advisor. That's is exactly correct. Yeah. So, yeah. and remember, and remember that. So we remember, cause we merged so quickly, there was no time for due diligence. So the other thing we had to do, we had to merge performance reporting systems and we had to merge CRMs and all, all of our systems. We had to come up with, what do you use for financial planning software? Like I was using Navaplan at the time, but we both realized that was super time intensive and not ideal. And she was, she was looking at this, Hey, there's this great new system called right capital. Let's look into that. So like we were, doing all of that at the same time. So what so what did you end up picking as your your systems of choice when you had to go through this transition? Because like what what were you using and then what what did you end out with if it was different? Sure. So I had Juncture Desktop at the time and which I had purchased in 2008 and they didn't really use a CRM at all. So there really wasn't one, especially because they didn't have employees. There wasn't workflows or anything like that. And right. I had very loose workflows. Um, so what we did is we decided to go to Juncture Cloud. And so and so shortly after we hired uh, John, I want to say this coincided with when we hired John. That's one of the things he helped us do is, is 
go up to the cloud and make that work because obviously cloud is very different than desktop. Yep. So we started with that. Then our um, investment management software, I believe I was using Morningstar at the time and she was, and we did our own reconciliations at the time. I can't believe it now, but uh, one of my employees did. And then she was using AssetBook, I think. And we had to merge both of those systems and we didn't want to go to either. We couldn't agree. We agreed that we didn't want to stay with either of those solutions <laughs> for various reasons. But um, and she said, oh, well, um, you know, Bill was looking at Orion before he passed. Let's look at Orion. So we had Orion come in and they did a presentation to us. And we're like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. We couldn't believe what software can do. I was like, that is amazing. So well, we, yeah, after you've been doing your own like manual download and reconciliation. <laughs> right? and I'm remembering from my early portfolio center days as well of doing manual downloads and reconciliations. So, yeah, like. Wait, the software just does it once centrally, and then my numbers are just right every morning? That's amazing. <laughs> right? It was amazing. But it was obviously going to be a lot of work, and it was very expensive. And so it was, you know, big contract. So there's the first, you know, there's a lot of leap of faiths here. You know, let's let's sign on the dotted line and merge our entire futures into this business after only thinking about it for, I don't know, a couple of days, a week, whatever. And let's, you know, let's sign our life away a year later and sign this huge contract with Orion for, you know, of course, I, th I think they make you sign a three-year contract. So hope we like it. Yeah. <laughs> so you ended up with Orion, Juncture Cloud, and then did you pick Right Capital as the planning software? I think that came a little bit later, but, okay. and we just muddled through with, um, with whatever we had. But then I, I can't remember if I was still using, I think we were still using Navaplan, but Navaplan was just so slow and clunky. I hated it. it. Took too long to do anything. And then once Gene showed me Right Capital, I thought, this is amazing. It doesn't take nearly as much time to put a plan together. It's very interactive. The clients loved it. Um, I think it came a little bit later, but a couple of years later when we hired another advisor, I think he spent his first year, he did, must have done 100 plans. He did a plan for almost everybody in the company where it was appropriate. So so you've got through the merger, and, and I guess it sounds like Gene managed to retain substantively all of the clients through this? Actually, no. We okay. lost we lost a lot along the way, but it was more of a slow dribble. <laughs> okay. If it were, there were, a, so first of all, there were a few that we couldn't keep because it didn't make sense with that many clients. You have to graduate the ones that right. you can. So we right. had to graduate some of those and she had all those difficult conversations. And then there was um, some other, other clients that just left. And then for the, for the next, I don't know, five years, four years or however long it's been, it was a slow dribble that has basically stopped. But if you look today, I think we've we've only got about 40% of those clients are still clients today. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so, well, I guess I'm, I'm struck by that relative to <clears throat> at least what I think of as a lot of the fears for advisors just going through those kinds of transitions that like something's going to happen and all their clients are just going to like you know, vanish and scatter that it sounds like while they while they did while some did drift away and some just you don't <clears throat> you don't want to retain and, and fight for like eh, I was looking for an excuse to fire that client anyway right. so we'll <laughs> we'll just not send them the paperwork to transition uh, that it wasn't an it wasn't an exodus it was a slow transition of clients shifting as you went through this. Right, which of course gave us the time to build up the revenue because we were always continually growing. Um, 
and adding clients just sort of at a, as as I've, we've always done slow and steady and so in in that transition though did did you still have to repaper advisory agreements when you did the merger was there still a round of you had to yes. get everybody who was going to come to at least sign once Actually, every single client had to. Uh, I was forgetting that. I think I'd blocked that out because that was so awful. We had we, to- <laughs> we all we all block out repapering. No one ever wants to remember repapering experiences. So we had to um, we had to have all of the clients had to sign a new contract, all one eighty, and I think all of my clients, because her firm was the surviving firm because legally that's what made sense. So even though my firm was Milestone Inc., we her firm, which was uh, Bill's initials, WJM Financial, um, LLC, was a survivor, but we changed the name to Milestone Financial Planning, LLC. And so all of my clients had to sign some sort of paperwork with the custodian to um, integrate over. So oh, that, but her clients but, didn't. But since her... So I guess that's an interesting angle because her entity ended up being the one that remained. Her clients didn't have to repaper to a new advisory agreement and sign anything because they actually stayed with the entity they were with. They just got notified of a, a name change on the entity. Well, they had to sign a new contract because of the merger. They did not have to sign new paperwork with the custodian. Okay. So there were there was still a new advisory agreement, but there were but you didn't have to open new accounts. Correct. Okay. And, and so how did it go just putting out advisory agreement? Like just were clients, and being on her end, like were, were her clients struggling with this already with, with Bill's death? Or is there a version of this that's just like, we don't really know what's going on. Gene seems fine. Like we'll sign this. And, and then a year or two later, they decided they didn't actually want to stay and left. Well, as you know, client, it's very difficult to get clients to do things so yeah. of, of their own violation. So Especially uh, you know. like paperwork that does not particularly help them. Like we <laughs> right. just need it for us. Yeah. Right. So, but obviously they knew he had passed and everybody was, of course, totally, um, you know, very sad and upset. And it was very traumatizing for a lot of these clients and because they were very close to him. And so um, then she would just put out something saying, okay, here's what's happening. And here's the next thing that's happening. So they knew it had to happen. So they, most of the vast majority of them signed, but, you know, we were sweating the last ones towards the end. And then all of mine had to sign and mine were harder somewhat because I, I had one person say to me, well, I don't want to sign this contract, you know, just because you know this person doesn't mean I know this person. <laughs> I might not want to, you know, have them be part of the business. Oh, oh, interesting. So you had clients that were so like, well, Jennifer, I know you vetted Jean, but I haven't vetted Jean. <laughs> right. So how do I know I want your new partner in my advisory relationship? It's kind of fascinatingly presumptuous yet productive. <laughs> well, clients. it was interesting because I would say 90% of my clients said, that's fantastic. You're merging and growing. We're like, we love being on this journey with you. And that's, that's how it's always been. You know, they've always been very mm-hmm. supportive, but there's always that 10% that are more like, oh no, it really should be all about me. <laughs> so. so how do you talk through that concern? Like, what do you do in that moment? I just said, well, I have to have the contract or we can't move forward. It, it, you know, it is what it is. They finally signed. So you just really didn't give them much of a choice. Like I couldn't, there was no choice. There was no choice without the contracts. We couldn't bill. So that first, so there's a lot of things with billing because I build in advance and she built in arrears. So I had to go an entire quarter with no billing. (laughs) So that was very stressful. 
Oh, interesting. So that was your resolution was because you build in advance and she built in arrears, you were going to consolidate to her world of billing and arrears, which means you had to go a cycle of no billing. Right. So when you merge with somebody, there's a whole lot of weeds. And that was not one of my non-negotiables. So when she said, but you bill in arrears, I mean, in advance, and I bill in arrears, I said, that's just a detail. We'll figure it out. And then when it got time to figure it out, I said, well, I feel like this. She said, I feel like that. And it was really, she felt stronger than I did. And I said, fine, we'll bill in arrears. So what, so what was the, I mean, just it's a non-trivial amount of, ma- of pain, particularly when you have staff and payroll to like Correct. not do revenue for a quarter. Uh, to get synced up. So what was what was the case for arrears versus advance that I guess that 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 Gene felt so strongly about that you were up for acquiescing to this and doing this transition? I think she just felt it was better for the clients. And I, you know, agreed. I said it's fine. It doesn't matter because it's also easier when somebody leaves. Um you know, you have to bill them instead of refunding them, but you don't have that risk of not refunding them at the appropriate time and the appropriate amount. So it it was fine. I didn't care. Okay. So just from the client termination end, right? If I bill, if I bill in advance and the client leaves mid quarter, I need to refund the unearned portion of fees for the quarter, and I have to make sure I mark that and calculate that very accurately because that's the kind of thing uh, regulators right. love to do the math and make sure right. that you did the math correctly. Uh, when you bill, <laughs> when you bill in arrears, at worst you have to go back and figure out how much of the quarter you should have billed for. Uh, and you still have to do that calculation correctly, but it doesn't get nearly as much regulatory scrutiny because you're not actually sitting on the client's fees that you haven't earned. You just have to bill appropriately for your partial right. quarter services while they're on their way out the door. Right. Or you can choose to waive it, depending. So was there anything else you did to just handle this transition from billing in advance to billing in arrears and just kind of punting oh. on a quarter's <laughs> worth of revenue? We didn't, I think we didn't take payroll for a couple payrolls, but I, we always knew there was light at the end of the tunnel. We just needed mm-hmm. to get through this difficult marriage period. It was, like I said, there were a ton of challenges with the merger, but once we got through it, it was all um, blue skies and bright, bright times ahead. <laughs> Not really, but it seemed that way. So what, what else were, I guess I'm just curious, like any other big speed bumps that cropped up in the in the in this like merger integration process for you? Well, picture this. So we're in the office. So whose office do I have? I have Bill's. I have to clean out his desk. I have to go through his computer. I have to go through emails. Every time a client came in for the next two years, because they don't come in that often, it was right. like the the death was fresh to them again. And who's this person? <laughs> Not that I was oh. Because you're literally now like you're in their old office space yes, and like you, you may be meeting with clients in Bill's office, which for them is the first time they've been in the office when it wasn't Bill. Right. So it was difficult for all of us, just the logistics of that. Having somebody die unexpectedly is terrible on for everybody on so many yeah. reasons, but it's just a lot, being an advisor was very uh, challenging. So I'm struck as well that, I mean, you had commented earlier, like, well, just from the pure business end, it's not about the AUM, it's about the, uh, it's about the revenue. So <clears throat> their practice was higher by AUM, 120 million versus 50 million, but only slightly higher by revenue at about 600,000 versus, versus almost 500,000 of revenue. But I guess I'm wondering, just <clears throat> does that mean there were other opportunities in the existing 
client base from from Gene and from Bill? I mean, just when right. when revenue was that low relative to assets, is that like because there's one mega client that was just getting billed lower? Is that because there were a bunch of clients that probably should have just had more robust fee schedules that maybe needed to be fixed? Like, were there opportunities to quote unquote fix billing and fee schedules to try to lift the revenue up for the clients that stayed? Was that part of the opportunity here? Now, when we had to do a sudden merger that had no was through no fault of the clients, we were not able to really do a giant fee increase. So we came we had to merge our fee schedules, which we did and that took a lot of work to come up with a structure that worked for both of our clients. And um, as you can tell, they had a lot of fee schedules that were abnormally low. So some of them were adjusted at that time to fit into the new fee structure, but a lot of them, especially because he had a lot of large clients and those we didn't want to, we needed those to stay. So we couldn't, didn't feel like we could whack them with a giant fee increase. So we tried to grandfather that, them in at lower con- contracts, which, um, so at that time, there really wasn't a lot of... Um, flexibility in the fee structure, but I always knew that we were going to need to do that. I mean, one of the challenges I see with a lot of advisors um, is uh, they they like to do the advising and working with clients and they're not great at the business running. And part of the running the business is coming up with a fee structure that works and that can support your business to grow and pay for staff, et cetera, going forward. And so um, over time, we slowly were able to adjust some of the contracts, basically because I would keep hammering on it. <laughs> this person needs to be adjusted, et cetera. But a large adjustment we didn't do until just this year. We restructured our fee schedule again, and um, we moved pretty much all of our clients into a new um, a new structure that makes a lot more sense to bring up our, our average billing rate per um, per AUM. That's always a statistic that I would love to hear people quote on your podcast. <laughs> I always wonder, what is the revenue per AUM? What do you mean? So like meaning fee schedule billing rates? Right. Well, overall, so if you take your total, you literally take your total yeah. revenue and you divide it by your AUM. And I track this, so I track this daily now, you know, so I can see the trend because we, of course, made we had another acquisition last year. And so, I mean, I, ours, as you can see, our, ours was really low, right? From the beginning, from our, founda- from our formation in 2016. And my task as CEO has been trying to increase that over time. And so now, you know, that was, I want to say, 60 basis points back then. And now I've got it up to 74. So I'm pretty proud of that. That was, But that was a lot of work this year, this year's project. You was going to say, like, you were a million to 1.1 of, of revenue getting into the gang of the merger on almost 170 million of assets. So yeah, like 60-ish bips. And right. you said, and now, now you're, at, you're at 74? Correct. Yeah. It is worth noting in that regard, like as as much as advisory firms talk about the proverbial one percent uh, AUM fee, and and just and we we do see that in the in the data, like the median fee on a one million dollar client is one percent, and it and it has been for like twenty years. It basically has not moved one iota for a long, long time. Uh, but we have graduated fee schedules. A lot of firms have at least a handful of clients that are. Uh, larger at much lower fee schedules because of the breakpoints. Sometimes firms have like a couple of four one k plans and other things in there that often have lower lower rates. And so, if you look at the industry benchmarking studies, um, which co- which which uh, the the label they use for this is revenue yield, uh, which is just as you said, like total revenue divided into total assets. Uh, most advisory firms, the actual revenue yield 
is typically 70 to 80 basis points. Right. Like and that's, that's where it tends to come in by the time you get to the discounts, the big clients, the accommodation clients, like all the, all the exceptions that crop up right. out there. Well, uh, and, yeah. and in our case, we have a lot of big clients. So we have, you know, cu- currently today, we've got three, three, six, 360 million and 225 clients. So we have a number of clients that are on tiered fee schedules, but our yep. main fee schedule, the first million is at 1%. That's our fee schedule. So- so in the in the context of these fee changes, I guess I'm I'm wondering what like what changes you did make to the fee schedule. I guess both initially, like what did you have to change and adjust just to make the merger of fee schedules happen? And then I'm also curious to hear what 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 came in the second round fee schedule change that you did more recently. But in the merger, like what what were the fee schedule like merge? issues in practice as you were trying oh, to do so this. So many. So mine, I used to do billing on the end of the quarter based on that exact number. That was the billing and it was it wasn't a tiered schedule. I don't think so. I think it was um like 1% over a certain amount or one one I think I also had 1.5% on small accounts, I forget. But it was basically on that exact number at the end of the quarter versus So like s- single quarter end balance just yes. snapshot on the date. Okay. Snapshot on the date. Now, but with Orion, we were able to do average daily balance billing, which I love because it's you can explain it to a client very well. Whatever happens to your account during the quarter is where our fee is going to be based out of. So if things go poorly, our fee goes down. Things do well, our fee goes up. Life is good. We're in the same boat. And and I guess just the appeal for you, it it just literally makes you a little bit less sensitive to whatever the darn market happens to do on the last day or two of the quarter. Uh, right. That that can materially alter your uh, your fee billing. Right, and she had to merge her clients into. We created these different. Our base fee structure, I think, was a little low. It was like point. It was one percent on the first million and point eight on the next million. But in practicality, we might bring in a, if we were bringing in a $2 million client, we'd bring them in at 0.8 on the first million. And so we had, and then we had different discounts. So a really large client, we, we set them up. So their fee, so they weren't getting a huge fee increase. We might start them at 0.7 and then uh, another client. Well, for some reason we didn't want them to leave. So we started them at 0.6, but but these aren't small clients. These are all in general clients that are in the millions. So it sounds, so it sounds like Functionally, there were two issues. There was how do you merge your standard fee schedule with Gene's fee standard fee schedule, and then the second was how are we handling the non-trivial list of exception clients that everyone's had over the years, and like line by line, client by client, are 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 we going to grandfather this person? Are we going to try to move them to the new fee schedule? And and you had to slog through those one by one as well. Right. And we were stuck with the lower fee schedules because it's not like we could say, oh, look, we're providing you all this value. Let's up your fee to one and a half percent when you know your primary advisor has, has passed away and you don't know us from a hole in the wall. Like we couldn't do that. Right. So we had to, we had to keep them. It's not like you're going to them and saying, because of all the value we provided over the past several years, we've determined that a more appropriate fee to fully recognize the value of the services we're providing to you is blank. This is more like right. your advisor died. We're trying to make sure we take care of you, not the best time to say like, oh, and by the way, we're going to charge you a lot more than Bill, the person you like right. who's gone. Right. Exactly. So, and we did, now we, I, I like to think that we have rectified that now with our current fee structure, but um, we, we moved everybody up. We still have some 
we didn't want to move people up more than a certain percentage, a big percentage, but still I didn't want to, you know, have everyone moving up by 50% or anything. So there are still some fee schedules that are so, slightly lower. So what changed this year? Like what, what, what is the adjustments or updates that you made to the fee schedule now to try to rectify this? Well, this year, what changed is at the end of last year, we acquired um, another member of my original NAFA study group. She was a solo advisor, and we acquired her December 31st, and she custodied with Fidelity. And all of last year, we were talking about preparing for the merger and talking about it, and this is how it would work and, and whatnot. And at the same time, as you know, TD Ameritrade got bought by Schwab. Yep. And so the customer service we'd been experiencing at TD Ameritrade was terrible. And um, we went and do due diligence on, okay, let's look at custodians. Is there something better out there? And then here's Kathy saying, oh, Fidelity's fantastic. Look at what I can do. Showing us, you know, and we, we'd say at the end of the year, you know, it took two weeks to get a in-kind Roth conversion done at Ameritrade. And in fact, they told me it couldn't be done. And she said, oh, look here, I hit a button and it's done instantly. See, it's in the client account. And I said, oh my God, I want that. Uh-huh. So, so that was just a small example. Obviously, it was a much larger decision, and I wasn't even on the committee that made it. But we had a, a subcommittee uh, investment committee that made the decision to switch custodians. And when you switch custodians, everybody has to sign a new contract. So mm. I said, when we determined this spring uh, that everybody was going to have to sign a new contract, I'm like, well, if they're signing a new contract anyway, we're doing a fee increase. <laughs> so that's See, in my- if you're, you're going to queue up paperwork to every single client in the book, you may as well include another page. <laughs> right. So then I did everyone's, you know, so the, my partners weren't, you know, on board. I mean, they're on, they understood fee increase. They understood why, but they were like, ah, lukewarm towards it. But then I said, look, it, I'll go first. So I did my, in, in May, I do, uh, it was the first year I'd done all my cluster meetings. So I clustered all my meetings together for four weeks in May and met with the vast majority of my clients and um, explained what was happening, why we were changing custodians, why Fidelity was better. And oh, by the way, we're also adjusting your fee. And here's how that's going to work. And went through their quarterly report and explained it all. And I had no pushback, none whatsoever, which was amazing. And so as everybody else saw me doing this, not getting pushback, they're like, huh. So so what was the fee change? Like just what what was it and what did it become? Like what well, what change were you making in practice? It was different for every client, but basically we were changing the middle tiers. So whereas the second tier might have been at um, 0.6 for some clients, we moved that up to 0.8. I think we might have had the old schedule was the second second million was at uh, maybe 0.6, and then the next million was at 0.4, and we made it we made a fee schedule so that. First million is one percent. The next two million is 0.8. The next three million is 0.6. So we adjusted it on the tier level, but it made a big difference. And we also calculated for every single client. I had this giant spreadsheet with every client on it what the actual percent of their fee change was going to be, and then it would come out to like 25, 30 percent. I'm like, all right, that's good. I feel that's a healthy fee increase for this year. Gives us room. Maybe we can, you know, do more in a future year, but it's not you know, overbearing. Again, I, I really wanted to stay away. I didn't want to do a 50% fee increase for folks. Well, but I, I, I mean, 25% is still, put it mildly, like that's not a trivial uh, fee increase, partic- although I guess relative to, if you're talking about this in the context of clients that are in your middle tiers, I guess by definition, like 
there's already a few million dollars on on the on the table here in the first place. So presuming that means when when we talk about twenty five percent fee increases, this means like the client who is getting billed twenty thousand dollars for a multi million dollar account goes to twenty five thousand dollars. Correct for a multi million dollar account. So like they're they do have the financial wherewithal to pay this. Like this is not a right. a fee increase for people who can barely afford the fee. Well, and they and the clients understood, or at least I, my expectation is that they understood what was happening here because we're growing. They see us hiring new staff, you know. It's and they're adding more services, doing more in depth planning. I mean, they've seen Right Capital came out, and you know, over the years we did that, and we do detailed tax planning. So there's a lot of depth there. Um, so I mean, we do a lot for our our, our clients. And so just. How- in practice, how do you sitting down for across from a client like explain and justify a twenty five percent fee increase? Well, it was helpful that we were also changing custodians because I was able to explain that and and everything together. People just sort of associated, oh, this is a whole big change, and it all goes together, even though they were two separate things. Um, you know, mostly I just said, and your fee is changing from this to that. And the clients that I didn't meet with, I would do it by email and I'd say, oh, and we are sending you a new contract and there is a new fee schedule. And they said, well, what is the old fee and what is the new fee? And I sent them the exact calculation from my spreadsheet, all the information and let it lie. I said, it is what it is. I didn't try to hide it. I didn't try to sugarcoat it. I just said, here's the old fee calc. Here's the new fee calc, emailed it off. and, And they said, okay, we, you know, we understand that, you know, we're trying to, you're trying to grow and, and we want Milestone to be there for us for a very long time. So it actually, I, I didn't have push, I didn't have any pushback. You say, did you get any defections? No, I didn't. Um, I think some of the other, unfortunately, so my clients, remember, my clients have always been with me. Whereas some of the other clients, we, we call them bill clients. <laughs> Were they the former bill clients? Because some of those, we got some pushback because remember, advisors taking them over, these weren't advisors that the clients right. chose, right? right. So it, it's hard. It can be, you can build a relationship with people, a new relationship, but that takes time. And right. some of the clients aren't local. So it's a lot harder or they're the mm. kind that are non-responsive. So they don't, you don't, you can't build a relationship with somebody that won't meet with you or talk to you. And so some of those uh, uh, fell away, but very few. And I, I guess, again, it's worth noting in context, as you said earlier, like your revenue yield was at 60 basis points and it went to 74 basis points. So it's it's not as though we're in the context of, and now everybody, and now all the clients are paying 1.25 or 1.5% right. and we're trying to rationalize a premium, quote unquote, premium exactly. fee relative to the the typical quote that they're given. Like a lot of these were clients at the end of the day had gotten aggressive breakpoint favors that you were just dialing back slightly. <laughs> right. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, you should just, you know, raise the fee and just bite the bullet and raise it to whatever because of the value you're providing. And that's great and all, but remember, it's not the Gen Show anymore. So we have a lot of different advisors with a lot of different opinions, several different owners, and we have to um, do something that works for everybody that moves us forward, but also everybody can live with. So in that context, as as you do this, as you put it, like the the transition from the Gen Show to the the you know mul- multiple partners uh, on board, I know one of the biggest challenges for firms when they go through these kinds of transitions is actually figuring out how that gets reflected in in income and compensation and in 
distributions to owners because you know when you're a solo even when you're a solo with staff like your income's pretty straightforward to figure out gross revenue minus what all the other team members get paid equals my comp uh once you have a partner that dynamic starts to look different especially if you've got different client bases with different revenue associated with it so how did you handle like the 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 split of salary and or profits and or whatever else with with gene when you make right. this transition from solo to uh to multi-partner to multi-owner for the first time so um if you remember i said i'll only do it if it's 50 50 so it was 50 50 but not so we we were 50 50 owners which means by definition uh we, so we became an llc taxed as an escort so by definition we had to have the same distributions but our salaries were set at a reasonable salary the salary that i was making on my practice and i rolled it in and gave her that a giant raise that salary on her practice on her new practice and then whatever fell to the bottom fell to the bottom and then i spent the next couple of years researching and studying how a business how an advisory business should be run, you know, read uh, Philip Pavlev's book and Mark Tiberian's book and came up with the percentages of what your P&L should look like, 40% advisor comp, 35% overhead, 25% profit. And I said, oh, okay, this is a guidepost. This is, this is what we're going to write our operating agreement about and use it as a base to try to make sure that we fit within these these um, goals. And that's what we've done. And so as long as we can maintain that 25% profit, and then we we further refined that over the years to split that 25% in five different ways. I don't know if you want me to get into that now or later. I'm uh, sure. I'm very curious <laughs> how you allocate your 25% profits. So um, this came about because the advisor we hired in 2016, John, the plan was always, we still needed a transition for Jean, right? She's still, you know, at this time right. she was in her mid sixties, you know, going to eventually retire. So we needed to figure that out. So slowly over time, you know, as we worked with John and he, he over the years got more clients, took over some of Bill's clients, did took in all the new clients, you know, um, but the, the thing about uh, John also is he's in the military, he's an officer in the Army Reserve. So every so many years, he actually is gone for a year as he goes off um, to deployment. And so we have to, we have to cover for that. And wow, um, for a year at a time. I mean, that's not just a like, yes. how do you cover for a team member on a two-week vacation or like a month-long extended vacation? He's out for a year at a time. Yes. So he was he was gone for a year, a couple of years after he was hired. And we knew that when we hired him and of course wanted to be supportive. So we had to cover for him and, and plan for that, um, which we did. Which you do how? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was very good. He had his own system for how he handled his clients, and he had these detailed Word documents where he detailed everything um, about uh, the client. So that, and, and plus, we had Juncture, so everything was in Juncture. He was, you know, a very big user of Juncture, as we all were. And so, when um, the, I was just the on-call advisor, so we, before he left, he had met with everybody, so everyone was pretty much all set. I just had to deal with the emergencies and a couple things that were still in process for the first six months, and then the next six months there were a few more things that came up and things that had to be dealt with. But for um, for the most part, it wasn't, he didn't have a lot of clients at that time. I want to say 30 maybe, okay. or maybe slightly fewer. 
Um, but the, the okay. next time, the next deployment, which will be coming up in the next few years, is going to be more challenging as he's now. he has more clients now. And he's a yeah. full owner. He's a manager. I mean, he's, he's everything. But um, getting back to it. So when he left, um, Gene and I knew, I said, all right, we've got to focus on writing an operating agreement that will make it so we can do this next transition. You know, we had the operating agreement we had to write at the shotgun wedding. Now let's take some more time and figure out what we want things to look like. So we, we had our, our draft, the existing one, and, and then we, we, ran some calculations. So how do, how do we want this to look? What do we want the profits to look like? How do we want to split things? And then what we came up with is, all right, so we need to be able to get young advisors to buy into the company. There's this problem where young advisors are having children, buying houses, still maybe paying off student loans. I mean, they have, you know, don't have a lot of cash, right? And you have an advisor that maybe has built a practice up to a certain level and they want to retire and they need to cash out to be able to, they don't want to be the bank, you know, they want to be able to fund their retirement. And how do we make these two people on the same page? And that's what I kept thinking of over and over in my head. And I, I would come in, I can remember going into Jean's office every few days and I'm like, all right, how about this? <laughs> I would throw a structure out to it. And then she would poke holes in it and I'd go back to my office and I'd do a little more work and I'd go back, how about this? <laughs> and finally we came to this, this conclusion. All right. So if we have that 25% profits, let's split that further. Let's call 55% distributions to owners, because remember, we're an S-corps. The owners also have to pay the taxes, right? So that's included in that number. And we're going to put 20% in a bonus pool that's paid to all employees based on different metrics, including performance and contribution to the success of the team and et cetera. And then we have, uh, later we added 3% slice to charity, 7% reinvestment in the business, and 15% retirement payments. What are retirement payments? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to give the the incoming owner a 60% discount on this stock. We'll get an appraisal and the incoming owner will pay 40% of fair market value for the shares. And as uh, in exchange for that, the retiring owner will get uh, 15% of the profits, so not, so not 15% of revenue, but 15% of profits for life with a 10-year period certain. And that's how we decided to start structuring it. And I, I keep holding my breath. Every year, we, we, we move deeper and deeper into this operating agreement and this, this way of sharing profits. And I keep waiting for it to blow up or something to go wrong. But so far, so good. Knock on wood, we did the first transaction with John in 2019 under this structure. We did um, at 20, was it 20, it might've been 2020, 2020 with the first um, buy-in in 2021. He bought the rest of the gene stock. And then we acquired, this is how we were able to acquire Kathy because she saw what we did with Jean and she said, Hey, I want that deal. <laughs> and so, you know, same deal. Uh, no money changes hands. We, you merge in, merge all your stuff in. So I just want to make sure I understand this. So, so in essence, when you when you sell your shares in exchange, you get forty percent of the value is as a an, an enterprise payment, a purchase payment. Yes, cash. Uh, and then in in lieu of the other sixty percent of of value for stock, you agree to take a fifteen percent of profits for life distribution, like literally annuity style, just 
will write you the check as long as you're alive. And when you pass away, then it right. ends. However, there's some caveats because all if you have multiple retired owners, they have to split that, right? So there's an allocation of how much you get. <laughs> and so how we figured that out is it's a combination of factors of, I think it's how many years of service at Milestone you had and uh, equally weighted to the dollar discount you gave up on your transaction date. And that's the share of the pool that you get compared to all other retired owners. Interesting. So, um, so I'm just trying to think about like math on this. So just to make the, the numbers round and easy. So if I assume I've got a, a, a million dollars of revenue, there's $250,000 of profits. Yes. And so- my retiring owner distribution might be 15% of that. So 30, 37,500, if I'm doing my math right, like that's almost, call it almost 40 grand, just around it. Uh, so I, I get a roughly $40,000 per year for life payment. And it's a little bit more complicated than that because we actually have a thing because there's profits then we have a thing that translates profits into distributable cash flow <laughs> so okay we leave a payroll a one payroll in the business for example we um, actually deduct uh, debt payments and you know we just have a few calculations to get to that distributable cash flow but yes it's essentially an easy way to think about it is uh, okay. 15% of so, profits so I guess this the one thing I'm trying to process. Like that's how does that get adjusted for just the like the amount of ownership I I had or sold in the first place? Like because I mean, am I am I getting fifteen percent of just total profits, or am I get fifteen percent of profits allocable to however much stock I gave well, up in the first place? Like I'm just trying now, to visualize. Like so here's would, the theory: Would Jean get the same thing whether she sold ten percent of her stock or fifty percent of her stock? If she was only the only retired owner, yes, but she's okay. not the only retired owner because, well, she, she will be. So she's now sold all her stock. So even though she still is employed, she gets retirement payments. You, that's the other thing is you have to have sold all of your stock to get any retirement payments. So we needed to incentivize that right. the retiring advisors to actually retire and move on, right? And so that was the incentive for them. And then um, it, it puts everybody on the same footing though, because then we get people, we get the retiring owners who say, oh, you know, I don't own a stock anymore. I'm not as involved in the business. I'm only working one or two days a week, but you need me to source some equipment for new hires. I'm going to go do that because mm -hmm. to the extent I can help make Milestone um, successful, I get more money in retirement profits. Right, right. <laughs> Right. And it, it incentivizes the new folks to be able to buy in because they only have to pay 40% of fair market value. It's right. a lot easier to swallow. Yep. It, it puts everybody on the same page. And then, you know, with as you have multiple people that are retiring, and that's the other thing is we have advisors of all different ages here, you know. So, and, and when we do an acquisition, we acquire a retiring advisor. It, part of the negotiation is we grandfather them a certain number of years worked because remember, you don't get retirement payments unless you have 10 years. At Milestone, you have to be at least 60. There's stipulations. So, I'm just, again, I'm just trying to napkin math this to wrap, wrap my head around it. So, if I if I start with this like million dollar practice, I realize that's not quite where the business was. It just it makes the math math numbers rounder yes. and easier. So so Gene Shear going in was a was was fifty percent. So you know five hundred thousand dollars of revenue is attributable to to her ownership stake. If we use at least like an easy rule of thumb, like two times revenue, call like her her fifty percent stake might have been worth a million dollars. 
And so to wind down her million dollar stake, she essentially gets a $400,000 payment. That's the purchase from the junior owner who covers yep. covers $400,000. The other 600,000 instead of getting $600,000 as a purchase payment, I get this 15% distribution that on the math that we did adds up to just shy of $40,000 uh, uh, a year at least at <clears throat> at current levels. So it it takes me about 15 years to recover my $600,000 at 40 grand a year with the caveat like I could live lo- shorter, but I could live longer and if the business grows that $40,000 actually be a lot higher by the time I'm 10, that 15, is the 10 key. 15 years out like you know if if the if the advisory firm is growing at at 15% a year then <clears throat> this thing quadruples correct in, that in, yes. in 10 years even right. just a 15% growth rate so that number can get quite quite large in the in the out years because they're still participating in future growth of profits exactly now uh, and that's that's exactly right. So this only works if we grow. So I've always had a 20-year rolling forecast going for very in very specific fine-tooth detail on all of the numbers and how a, things are going to look. A 20-year rolling yes. for that's a long business forecast. Well, it's okay. no different than a financial plan, right? You go out 20 no, or 30 years. So yep. you know it's garbage in the future, but you've uh-huh. got something you've got something to work with. And you can you can give an idea because if you say, "Oh, well, if we do slow steady growth and we add so many clients a year, and then that pace increases after so many years, then at right. the end of the 20 years, you'll have X number of clients and have you done the staff right because in this forecast you have so many advisors and does that work out the ratios?" I mean, it, you can be in the bright ballpark. And you can see where where I mean where the business is going to go, and it obvi- and it offsets bad years because you know in one of the years there's going to be a market crash, and right. so things won't be great great. But you know in other years the market's going to go gangbusters, and you're going to have a right. banner year, right? So it all smooths out, and then you do net present value on that, and things look pretty darn good. I mm-hmm. you know this again. I keep waiting for some there to be some problem yeah. with this this um, process, but today. Well, I guess, I, I mean, just as I think of it functionally, like most advisory firms, to the extent that they finance purchases, they essentially finance it over usually five to seven years, maybe 10 at the outside. Um, just that's that if if a purchase has happened, either seller financed or debt financed, it's you most often seven years and generally somewhere in the five to 10 year range. You've got this version that is much less upfront, right? Like I'm only getting my 40% upfront, whereas some deals today are getting struck as high as 70 or 80% upfront uh, and financed over a much longer time period because I may be stretching payments out for uh, 15 or 20 plus years, depending on how long I live. But in exchange for less upfront and uh, uh, and, a, and a longer call it amortization period for paying this down, I, I participate in upside. Right. That's exactly right. It's like everything. And and yeah. it's just like and, investing, really. You're participating in your upside. And, and I presume as well, just the fact that the retirement payments are 15% of the margins also means like, you know, years like the years like 2022, 2020, like just the, the right. bear markety years. Right. Everybody just understands like there may be years where margins are are Correct. a good bit lower because we had a, a nasty bear market. Like that's part of the deal. We can also get good bull market years where margins end up higher. But um, uh, I guess just they they likewise have to know and own and acknowledge that there is some volatility to these payments because advisory firm profits in particular are 
are volatile. It's part of the leverage of the business. Right. And everyone's in the same boat. So you've got your employees in that boat because remember, 20 of the bo- 20% goes to employee bonuses, right? So they're in that profit sharing mode as well. So everyone's in the same boat. If there's a bad market, everybody understands. There's a great market. Everybody understands. We had to control for owners raising their salaries to unheard of levels to make sure that there weren't profits. So the operating agreement actually specifies that we're running the business for that 40%, 35%, 25% split that the owner's the um, yeah owner's compensation, just like all compensation, needs to be based on fair compensation for the job role that they're doing. Um, also, the other thing I want to point out is that we were not solving for at Milestone, we're not solving for making the most money. Like that's not any of our goals. This situation won't work. If you want to make the most money, stay a sole proprietor, right? Because right. you'll, you'll make gobs of money that way. But we make a really good living. We help a lot of people. We have a fantastic team. We get to work with people we love and uh, um, and and things look good. It's not like anyone's going to be poor in this situation. Right, right, right. So, so I guess two follow-on questions that I do have around this. First, uh, so how do you set um, the employee bonus pool? I mean, you you mentioned kind of there's things that tie to performance and and success, but this setting bonus pools is a very challenging thing for a lot of advisory firms to Absolutely. figure out what's appropriate, what's fair. So I'm I'm curious just if you can share yeah. some further details, like how exactly does that work? So it's obviously a challenge as everything is. We keep trying to make it, well, there's got to be some black and white way to do this, yeah. but it, it, there really isn't, right? How can you do that? It comes down to, so we, we, we meet as a group of managers every year and it used to be back in the day, just me and Gene, but now right. we have more of us and we sit down and we say, all right, here's every single employee. The first thing we look at is contribution to the success of the team because we really focus on that here. We expect everybody to really help your, your teammates out if somebody is struggling or if somebody's overwhelmed, where can we jump in to help with their workload, et cetera. So how, how, how are you on that scale? And pretty much everybody here is, is great on that scale. So we have a, a, a base. So that's kind of like just your managers, for better or worse, like subject, subjective evaluation. Yes. Just were you were you a good team player and a good yes. contributor to the success of the of the business? And I guess like you you get a score of one to five or some kind of functional equivalent to that to to say are you at the top of the range, the middle of the range, or the bottom of the range? Um, something like that, but more more usually. That's just like a base number for everybody. Because honestly, if you weren't a good team player, you wouldn't still be working here because you wouldn't be happy. We wouldn't be happy, right? Mm -hmm. So then the next level is, all right, what did you do that is over and above that helped increase our revenue, reduce our expenses? Now, it would be very easy to say, oh, you know, John and I did everything. We get it all, right? Right. That's not not really our goal. So we're looking at, at everybody else and what did they do? Did they go out and they staff a booth for us or did they come up with a new product? Process or start a committee, and or um, I, I don't know. We had one person, one one of our administrative people, actually did a whole bunch of work in a prior year, coming up with new systems and coming writing an on an employee onboarding flowchart, two week training plan that was amazing, and helped me help do a whole bunch of slides for um, some uh, financial triage courses that I was putting together through my church, like just went over and above doing all of this work. So that person, you know, got a sizable bonus that year, right? So because that was over and above. And what I didn't want to do is tie bonuses to percentage of salary. I okay. uh, I really felt 
Like everybody's just because you're in a non-advisory role does not mean that you didn't make a massive contribution to the success of the business and you should be compensated accordingly. So it doesn't matter what your position is. It matters what did you do to move the business forward. So then just help me understand mechanically how this ultimately gets allocated for people. So again, I'm I'm going to go back to my generic million dollar baseline just yep. helps to sure. make the math easy. So like a million dollars of revenue, $250,000 of profits. If there's a 20% allocation to this uh, pool, there's like there's $50,000 hard dollar cash in this pool to get allocated to employees. So how do you like, I, I understand there's sort of a relative like you're going to get more of the pool because you contributed more to the success of the team and you did this super cool thing that was over and above this other person is just going to get the baseline participation because they contribute right. to the success of the team, but they did not do anything that was over and above. But how do you actually get that down to, okay, but who gets how much of the $50,000? Uh, well, we just start assigning numbers and we just we put everybody's name down on the spreadsheet and then we put numbers next to everybody and then we discuss it as a group because you know the bigger our team gets, the um, more people you need okay. to know that person specifically. Interesting. And- and so you'll so, just come down to there's a half a dozen plus names on the list, and we just start going down down the list to say like I think you know this person should get eight thousand, this person should get five thousand, this person's really only at three thousand, this person actually was really over and above, they did a huge thing, it's going to be ten thousand, and and like the numbers just get set that way to be what they're going to be until you until it adds up to the fifty thousand dollars you had to allocate. Pretty much, yes, and uh, and some years, you know, the bonus pool isn't as big as what we'd like because we weren't able to hit that twenty five percent, so it's a little smaller. And in that case, because you know, as as drivers of the business, I mean, John and I are running the business day to day. We do participate in the bonus pool, but we also will undertake our bonus so that other people get what we feel that they deserve. There is also right. a certain level that we we really feel, makes us feel good to be able to compensate people um, in a way that appreciates their performance. And I guess per your earlier comment, the notable thing about that that structure is, you know, you've got $50,000 at the top of the column and then a list of names and you're trying to allocate the dollars out to the names, but uh no like just as you noted, nobody's salary is on this list. So it's not Correct. a like you get a 10% of salary bonus and you get a 15% and you get a 3% like we're allocating dollars. And so in practice, that could be a, a very large percentage for some people and a smaller percentage for others relative to their salary, but you're not looking relative to their salary. Correct. Because again, depending on position, your position could be one of the most valuable to yeah. the entire firm. And without some of these operations folks, we couldn't do what we do. Right. You know, so I, I, I'm big on making sure people are compensated for that. And And for the people who participate in this, is this by definition like employees who are not owners? No, or- it's it's everybody okay. except that retiring owners traditionally have um, waived theirs so that there's okay. enough of a bonus pool to go around. So again, if you have to look at the milestone culture, we are not solving for making the most money. If that is your goal, then you probably shouldn't work for us. We're our, our, we, we're more built around helping people and mm-hmm. um, the helping people mentality. Very cool. Very cool. And then, um, uh, so the other question I have in this context, when you get down to like, 
how do you get dollars allocated? So you, you've made the point a few times that you really focus on trying to pay reasonable salaries for owners for their roles, and then profits come on the profits end later. So it's in your operating agreement to try to tie the fair compensation so that you ideally get pretty close to the 40% direct expense to advisors, 35% overhead, 25% margin structure that you know, Tversching and Pallavi and others have talked about. And still raise the question of just how literally do you figure out what a reasonable salary is for owner roles? Like where does where do those numbers come from or how do you figure out what appropriate numbers are? So we're just now coming up with what is a career path for advisors, taking them through the planning associate all the way through. And so we're having to calculate this. Okay. And and then a, what is the formula for paying an advisor as they go through their um, time with us and get more clients and more revenue? And then how does that apply to us? Because it should be the same, somewhat similar, but then there's bump ups for other things because, you know, we have all have multiple jobs. You know, I'm doing, I'm a CCO, I'm doing a bunch of compliance, I'm running the business, I'm the CFO doing the finance stuff as a CPA, I get really into the nerdy numbers. So there uh, are different ways, but we're trying to just now come up with um, a formula of percentage of revenue that you support maybe with bump ups, add-ons for different other roles, but it's not perfected yet. Honestly, right now it still feels to me like it's a little bit of a shot in the dark, but um, it is loosely tied to revenue supported. So so it sounds like the baseline is kind of a percentage of revenue that you manage as an advisor as an advisor comp and then those of you in leadership roles are getting like <clears throat> extra dollar amount allocations for like your C level title responsibilities. Like you get a percentage of revenue plus X dollars because you're chief compliance officer or plus Y dollars right. because you're your CFO. Right. Because someday we're gonna have to hire those positions. So if we start building them into the projections now, then when it comes time to hire, you know, then we've got, already got the numbers there. And how do you think about these percentages of of revenue to figure out like what a number is? It's a good question. One we're struggling with because is the revenue just the advisor salary or do you include the planning associates in re and as advisor comp or do you include the planning associates as overhead? <laughs> you know, some of them... Yep. With, Without them, for me particularly, I'm unique in the firm because I have so many different hats. I don't actually do day-to-day nitty-gritty planning. I meet with the clients. I review the planning. I train planning associates. But they're doing the work. So without them, I couldn't service the clients. So to me, that's planning related. But then sometimes they're doing paperwork, which is not. That's overhead. And there's a whole training component. So we, we go back and forth on where to put folks and how would that fit into? Because obviously if I have 80 clients and I have a planning associate, then that's, do I include their salary before I take the percentage? And so we're, we're, we're trying to work through those numbers now, but the, the main bottom line, the only thing that really matters is that we hit the 25% profitability. And, and nominally you're trying to get to that with the Tiburgian sort of 40, 35, 25 split, which I guess for those who aren't familiar, it, it, the, the framework, which just comes from where advisory firms tend to average out when you put all the numbers in, in into a, a P&L or a benchmarking study, is 40% of revenue goes to direct expenses, which essentially is the, the money it takes to make the revenue happen, otherwise known as advisors who are responsible for clients. So 40% into a pool that covers the, the, the cost of advisor servicing revenue 
35% that covers overhead. So admin, ops, support, compliance, technology, office space, insurance, all the other, all the other things that, uh, that cover business expenses besides the people who, who make the revenue happen directly. And ideally, that leaves you 25% left over in profit margins if you've got all your revenue and you subtract 40% for direct and 35% for overhead. That's right. So you're, so you're trying to make the you're trying to rake the revenue numbers fit that kind of profitability and uh, uh, framework. Yes. And again, I'm not worried too much if advisor comp goes to 42% and overhead drops a little, as long as the 25%. We're managing to try to get to that 25%. And because if, if the 25% gets too high, then that means we need to reinvest in the business. And if it gets too low, then we need to change something. So- I guess I'm just wondering, like, what does all this add up to today in terms of just like, where does the business stand? I mean, we've talked about different advisors adding, subtracting and 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 and, and growth and volatility, but like uh, assets and revenue and employees and clients, like just sure. can you paint the picture of, of what it all adds up to and where the business stands today? So today we have 360 million um, under management, 225 clients. Uh, we have 12 bodies, 12 team members, but um, two of them are part-time and phasing out over the next couple of years. Uh, Jean's down to, she, in 2023, she'll be just down to one day a week, and I think Kathy will be three. So that they don't, they, I have to build up to replace two okay. senior advisors with a lot of experience. So we have, um, since it's so difficult to hire CFPs, of course, we're perpetually yep. trying to hire a CFP. Um as we are right now, but so we we um, we build them, we grow them, we bring in a, a kind of. Um, I have a, a knack for finding people who um, are usually career changers. They're really good either at, at something to do with finance or super interested in finance, but that wasn't what they did out of college, and they want to be a CFP. Mm. And then we bring them in and we train them how to be a CFP, pay for all their CFP work, and those become our CFPs of the future. So we have okay. what we call those planning associates. And we have four of them today, right now. And then we have two uh, two retiring senior advisors, two current senior advisors, and uh, one advisor who came in as a planning associate in 2018 and is now an advisor. Okay. And we have then we have operations team. We have a client service rep. We have um, a director of operations. And uh, we have something called a project leader who has been in operations, so can do overflow operations, but really is there to do all of those things when you're looking at something and you're like, oh, that would be a great project. Boom, project leader. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's where we are today. It's good to have a person. It's like, oh, we have a project. That that person, that person does the project. Got it. Right. There's a person who ended up being very, uh, when they were in operations, they were very good at projects and technology and uh, the SharePoint and et cetera. And so that just became sort of a natural fit. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? What surprised me? So I think, I mean, it's very, very difficult for sure. But I guess what most surprised me is being where I am today. I guess I never thought, I just, I, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell talks about putting in your 10,000 hours. And I just every day got up and did the grind. And then one day I woke up and suddenly was running this 
much larger practice, over a million dollars. I think they they say that only 4% of businesses get up to a million dollars worth of revenue yeah. in a year. And some even smaller percentage were run by women, you know, so I, that surprises me. I mean, it's not like I planned for it. Just, I mean, obviously I just put my head down and did the work and then here, here we are. <laughs> so Very it's just cool. slow and steady gr- growth with a little luck thrown in and some big bursts <laughs> from mergers. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, so you when did the firm start originally? Two thousand three. So slow and steady growth for coming up on a twenty year anniversary. That's that's true, you know. And part of that is because, um, I, you know, the early years I was having kids, and so I could only yeah. work twenty hours a week or twenty five hours a week. So it wasn't it, there wasn't a whole ton of growth when in those early years. It was just slow and steady, and here we are today. What is one of the interesting effects that we? seen a version of this in our the the research studies we do on the on the Kitsis platform as well that uh you know there's lots of things that go into like advisor in in income and and earnings success and career success over time of you know the the degrees and designations that you earn is is a factor and and the types of clients that you work with is a factor and like your effectiveness in uh, leveraging technology to run the business well is a factor, but the thing we find every time we do the study is the the sheer greatest predictor of advisors' income is the number of years that they have been client facing, and like just just raw years, like just the raw count. Uh, and I think it's some version of Malcolm Gladwell's ten thousand hours of putting in the time to to learn the learn the skills. It's how we build our client base, we build our reputations in our community, we build our brand, we just hone our skills, both with the client work and the business management side, and just sheer time, uh, it's amazing how much it adds up in compounds in the advisory business. Never feels good when you're in the first few years and the the numbers aren't big and the hours are huge and it feels awful, but uh, always fascinating to me, the, the sheer impact of cumulative time in the business because most of us have mid to high 90s retention rates of our top clients and just if you do that long enough it it adds up it really adds up yeah what's really funny is i was looking at to prepare for this back at my statistics from early on and in 2009 i also had about 80 clients but only 14 million under management so it's just you know interesting the progression from mm-hmm. there to here you know and now only probably 26 clients of the, that set of clients are still clients today but you just you know i didn't start out getting all clients and pricing everybody, I priced everybody appropriately, but I didn't start out with a minimum because in the beginning right. you need to eat. You know, I was trying to add your, revenue. And lo- <laughs> your minimum is, can you pay me because I would right. like to eat? <laughs> right. But then if you want to grow, you have to know how to graduate clients and, and continually evolve. So what was the, what was the low point for you on this journey? You know, interestingly, low point is mostly personal for me, mostly personal stuff that happened along the way, um, such as, you know, I got divorced in 2012 and that was very difficult and scary because the real estate market was terrible and the economy wasn't great and the business was still really small. Um, that was that was difficult. Other difficulties was some staffing issues that we had to make in 2018 right after the merger. One of the things I wish I had done differently is learn early on how important it is to work with the team and grow them and how do you to train and grow and make a really great place for people to work so that you don't have turnover. I think we've got that done now, but I didn't figure that out until 2018, 2019. And so 
So what what happened or like what was the what was the gap that got exposed for you? I had uh, because I didn't have the time or I didn't make the time to dedicate towards employee training and growth. Uh, a employee issue came to light that couldn't we couldn't work with anymore and had to transition that employee elsewhere. And that was extremely painful for me, particularly because you know, I, I like people and I like all the people I work with and, but it just wasn't working out for various reasons. And I, I will forever feel that was my failure in not properly training the person from the beginning. They'd worked for me for two and a half years, but because I just didn't take the time, the issues didn't come to light until later. That was just very, that was very painful. And, and so what do you, like, what does that look like now? What do you, what do you do differently now? try to fend that off. I actually spend a lot of time with all of the team members, even though, you know, some of them report to me, you know, three or four of them report to me, but the rest don't. I spend time talking to everybody at every level, um, at least weekly, just to, you know, get just casually, just to get to say, hey, how's it going? What's going on? Here's what's going on in the firm. I don't like having us versus them. And to me, we're very transparent about everything. There are no secrets. So I will talk to anybody about, hey, this is what the latest thing is that we're thinking about. We're thinking about hiring this position or that position, or, hey, we might be acquiring another advisor next year. And this is what that's going to look like. And making people feel like they're in the know, because I find that Really, every problem in business and in life is due to poor communication. So I try to over-communicate now. It takes a lot of time, but it's really worth it. It it really makes me have very good relationships with people. And I I think it it keeps people, I don't know, feeling in the know, feeling like they – really like to be here. I mean, we've had no turnover since that time. Every single person that we've hired since 2019 is still here. So I, and, you know, some of them have told me this is the best place I've ever worked and this is the best job I've ever had. And so that makes me feel good. You know, I feel like we've built a a place where people are happy and people want to come to be. And that's one of our goals here at Milestone is that we want, we want to be the place to work in New Hampshire. So, so what is this, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what does this look like in practice to be able to talk to all the people in the firm every week at at least casually? I mean, like, is there a, is there a structure? Do you do a lot of one-on-ones? Do you just have like a common kitchen area and you hang out there a lot and let people kind of rotate through to the proverbial or literal water cooler and catch up with them as they go through? Like, how do you do this? It's a little bit of both and it's not strict like weekly necessarily. So the people, the people, my, my team, the people that I work with on a daily basis, I make it a point Mondays are meeting days. So we have a full team meeting every Monday for an hour and I have separate meetings with the people that I'm working with to make sure that, you know, they don't have any roadblocks in what they're doing and to talk about issues or whatnot. And then some of the other people will have, I might have a standing meeting every two weeks to chat with them uh, again on a Monday and just say, hey, what's going on? What's the pulse? This is what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? Um, Obviously, that's not scalable and isn't going to work forever. But for for right now, if I can train the team to do that, and then they can replicate that going forward as they go throughout their career, then information can keep flowing to everybody in the firm. Because as long as everybody knows what's going on, then people aren't scared. People are terrified of the unknown. And you have to keep the unknown to a minimum. So anything you wish you had, or I guess anything else aside from the team relationships that you you wish you'd done differently? Like, what do you know now you wish you could? go back and tell you 15, 20 years ago as you were getting started? It's mostly, you know, that's, that's just it. It's just mostly 
developing, leading, and managing my team sooner. That's so important. I, if I could give any anyone any advice, I would say that is probably the most important thing to building a successful business. Because if you have turnover, that can destroy your business pretty quickly or make your life difficult at a minimum. So so any other just like tips or changes that you've made of what's what's helping you lead and manage the team better now than you did in the in the past? Um, communication. That's really it. Communication and sharing of information, not being afraid to tell people what's going on, both the good and the ugly. Um, that would be primarily what I would tell people. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors looking to become a become a planner in the in the profession today? I would tell them, don't be deterred by people telling you what you can't do. Um, early on in my career, I got a lot of that. Oh, you can't do that. You won't be successful doing that. And you know, I, if I'd been deterred by that, I wouldn't be here today. Also, mm. an, an, another thing that is commonly told to girls and women is you're bad at math. So <laughs> I would encourage all women, especially young women, don't, don't believe it if somebody tells you that you're not going to be good at math. It's sort of ingrained into our society. And like my mother would always tell me, oh, I wasn't very good at math. But all of the bookkeepers and all of the analytical skills I have come from her side of the family, <laughs> not my father's side. Uh -huh. So um, I and she's also excellent with puzzles and math is kind of like puzzles. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's um, that's one of the lessons I want to impart on any young women is you can really put your mind, you can do anything you put your mind to. So this is a, a podcast about success. And one of the things I've observed as long as it is even the word success means different things to different people kind of as you've noted in your journey sometimes it it changes for us as the business evolves and the needs of the business evolve and so you know the business is now at a a great place of of success but i'm wondering how how do you define success for yourself at this point so I'd say I have success because I was able to be home for my kids when they were small. I get my kids off to school every day. I eat dinner with them every night. I, you know, with my kids when they go to bed, I have a good job. We're never going to be hungry or not have a place to sleep. Like I feel like that to me is, is success. I get to coach my son's baseball team. Um, I get to, you know, help my daughter look for colleges that and do work that I love and share my gifts. I feel like I'm very blessed with these skills and it's my duty to help as many people as possible and share them to the extent possible. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.